This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Marketing Matters on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We are back. This is Marketing Matters on Sirius XM Business Radio 132. You got Pete Fader, a colleague of Barbara and Americus. Barbara and Americus are out there trick-or-treating. I don't know, but I'm here with my co-host, Sarah Toms, talking about customer centricity. I want every one of you to do something right now. I want you to go online and go to Amazon.com or your favorite bookseller and type in Customer Centricity Playbook and buy that thing. That's our brand new book that Sarah and I have. Uh, we're super excited about it. And I have to say, we're, we're, we're feeling really good about the, the kinds of initial reactions that we've had. It's only been one day since we launched it. But just uh, sharing some of the copies with, with, uh, with people in our network and just other thought leaders in this space and just seeing the kinds of things that they've, that they've been saying about it. Sarah, why is there so much positive buzz about this? Well... I mean, again, another point of pride for, I think, the two of us, where we laid out a really structured approach to thinking about not only a lot of marketing and finance and uh, technology research, but also a really practical approach to thinking about customer centricity and not just thinking about it, putting a plan in action. And that's really what this book is about, is about not sitting on the sidelines anymore, how to roll up your sleeves, and the fact that you should be now and getting to work with your you know, your plan for customer centricity. So I'd love to tell stories about the, the origins of the book. Uh, earlier we were talking about how it arose from a particular simulation, but then we decided to kind of just focus just on these particular concepts and methods by themselves. And as we were writing the book, and as we got into the, the, the point that you just raised, Sarah, about how to not just just move the chess pieces around, but how to build the right organization for it, um, we kind of had a, an, an uh-oh moment at the very, very, very end. Uh, after we had committed to everything, including the title of the book, uh, I said to you, we made a mistake. We gave it the wrong title. So, Sarah, tell us about uh, why we reached that, that uh-oh conclusion and maybe what the title should have been instead. Yeah, sure. So, first of all, for me, this is the first time I've ever written a book. So uh, I've created a lot of product, um, but writing a book is a completely whole new world for anybody sitting out there thinking about uh, writing one. Number one, you should. It's a wonderfully creative process and one which will push you intellectually. But... All the book was done, and I was actually doing my final read-through just for line edits, and I got a text message from Pete, and the book was due to the publisher the next morning. And I'm literally changing uhs and ons and ofs and things like that, and I get a text from Pete saying, you're really not going to like me when I say this, but dot, dot, dot. Next text comes in, I hate chapter six, and I took the text in stride, and trusting and knowing Pete as well as I do, I realized he's probably right. I need to roll up my sleeves and hear him out and understand what was wrong with Chapter 6. And really, what that conversation that evening, and I remember it was around 9 o'clock at night, we sat down and really looked at what we were trying to accomplish, which was the icing on the cake. How, what do you really need at the end of the day to be thinking about to move your organization to action. And we had not delivered that in our first, you know, incarnation of Chapter 6. And this really pushed me to think about my own field. You know, I've been in the technology field for over 20 years. The technology field has come through many iterations, especially with, you know, the, the innovation cycles and the fact that they keep speeding up. And one of the things that happened, which I was, I was a part of from the standpoint of, you know, I was creating technology in the 90s when it was the Wild West. And, you know, we didn't have dev servers. We didn't have, you know, development practices. We did have the waterfall methodology, which is an approach to creating product. It's a very product-centric approach, which is incredibly heavy-handed. 
the waterfall approach calls for reams and reams of documentation to uh, give your technologist requirements. It means that your technologists are not actually actively coding and delivering quality work. They're, they're really uh, bogged down in this very process-heavy approach to, de to delivering product. And back in 2001, 17 technologists had had enough, and they came together in Snowbird, Utah, and in a hotel and decided, you know what, we need a manifesto, and we need to lay out an approach to a more lightweight approach to creating software. And really the goal there was not just the quality, but also more of a partnership, a partnership with the users, a partnership with the stakeholders, and making sure that in the end of the day, the right product was being delivered. And so after I hung up the phone with you, Pete, I thought about that experience that I had, and you know, I quickly, once you know, the Agile Manifesto was um, published, I turned to my technology teams and said, we need to be agile. This is exactly what we should be embracing. And that really changed an entire industry and uh, the approach to how software was being designed. And so taking on board my experiences in the software world and what a manifesto did for us, I thought, you know what I think Pete would appreciate? A customer centricity manifesto. And so I took a stab at one that evening. I scratched one out on a, on a piece of paper and walked it over to your office the next day. And we sat there and thought about it. And really, if you can distill everything we're talking about in the book into a manifesto, I think it's a great place to begin the conversation in your organization. And so we have this customer centricity manifesto. Uh, and so we'll get into the specifics of it in, in just a second. But uh, uh, so what what have we done with it? How are we, beyond pages in the book, uh, bringing it to life? Yeah, so just like our friends uh, who are in Snowbird, we have launched a website. So you can go to customercentricitymanifesto.org, and you can read the manifesto. You can uh, also sign it. So we're looking for signatories. We have just started to publicize that it's there. And in the next few weeks, we will start to publish the names of those who have signed it. So li listeners, I bet a, a lot of you, uh, as I, I said earlier, have, have not only discovered that your customers are different from each other, but that you'd really like to find a way to transform your organization, to, to take advantage of it. You'd like to have some, some guidance that will tell you what are the things that you need to do, what are the things you need to say, what are the things you need to believe uh, in order to, for yourself and for the others around you in order to make this customer centricity stuff happen. So we're, we're talking about the transformation to customer centricity. Love to get your thoughts on it, either success stories or frustrations in trying to get uh, people in your organization to think differently. And why don't you give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866, with, with your own stories about customer-centric transformation. Again, we have this, this one particular uh, angle on it, the customercentricitymanifesto.org. Uh, and so, Sarah, what would the, manifest, the, the manifesto consist of? So the manifesto, I'm just going to read it, if that's okay, Pete. Just make it seem like you're just doing it off the top of your head, though. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so off the top of my head, um, so the Customer Centricity Manifesto is uh, customer heterogeneity over the average customer, cross-functional uses of CLV over siloed applications, metrics that reflect customer equity over volume and cost obsession, and finally, clear communications with external stakeholders over misalignment and misunderstanding. Sounds good to me. Not that I'm biased or anything. Uh, but there's one word in there that uh, most of those words should be pretty clear, cross-functional uses. We've already spoken about CLV. But you mentioned this idea of customer equity. What the yep. heck's that? Yeah, so customer equity is, and we do spend uh, actually an entire chapter in the book talking about customer equity. So this really, when we're talking, just to take a step back here, Pete, when we talk about transformation, transformation cannot happen in a vacuum. 
And you're not going to move the dial in your organization if this is a uh, initiative that is driven purely by the marketing or the marketing and sales teams. You need buy-in. You absolutely need buy-in across your organization. And you're going to need buy-in from the CFOs and your financial people in particular. And so we have a chapter in the book where we delve into the details about you know, the traditional ways to value corporations and how corporations traditionally look at their assets when they're figuring out valuation. And the fact that more and more companies are starting to recognize that customers aren't behaving the way that traditional finance folks say they should be. They're a little bit more sticky. They're behaving in other ways that are not necessarily captured completely in those financial models. And that's where you and I launch into a long discussion about brand equity and customer equity. And Pete, do you want to describe our thinking on those? I'm happy to do so. So a lot of people are familiar with the concept of brand equity. It's been around for a long time. It's, it's not only easy to explain, but, but people love to talk about examples. So it's basically just, just how much financial value arises from the brand. And we're not only talking about the logo, we're talking about what the brand means, how it makes you feel, just all the other advantages that, that it provides to the corporation, letting them hire better employees, get better tax incentives from government, and so on. If we can uh, uh, tie a ribbon around all of that, that would be the brand equity. And again, people love to talk about what the world's most valuable brands are. So just, I believe it was two weeks ago, uh, perhaps the largest brand valuation firm, a company called Interbrand, uh, they came out with their annual listing of, for the, the world's most valuable brands. And I bet that most of our listeners would know that, uh, at least according to Interbrand and almost every other brand equity valuation scheme, comes up with Apple. Apple's the most valuable brand. It's worth on the, the order of $200 billion. That's not Apple the company. Again, that's the Apple brand itself. Now, you might ask yourself, on one hand, you might say, yeah, I know that the Apple brand and everything that it stands for is worth a lot, but how do I know that it's worth that specific amount of money? And, and sure enough, Interbrand gives it to you with, with great specificity. Uh, and I think that's a very good question to ask. I think there's good reason to be skeptical, to say, yet, yes, the Apple brand, as well as you know Google and Amazon and, and, and Ford and so many other brands are, are extremely valuable, but how can you kind of nail it down to dollars and cents like that? And I think it's, it's a really good question, and it's, it'd be really hard to get a, a chief financial officer to say, yes, I agree, the brand is worth exactly that amount. So as much as brands are very powerful, there really is a great deal of brand equity, it's hard to measure it, it's hard to communicate it, and it's, it's hard in a very specific way to leverage it. Whereas this idea of customer equity, uh, Sarah and I like to believe, is much more tangible. And it goes back to the basic idea of customer lifetime value. Uh, as, as we heard Dan McCarthy talk about, it's, it's actually not that difficult to look at each customer and project ahead and say, how many more purchases will they make and how valuable will those purchases be to come up with the future projected value of each customer. Well, what happens if we add all that up? So if we add up the value of all of our current customers and if we add in the value of the not yet acquired customers, that gives us customer equity. So it really is a discounted cash flow measure. It's just the amount of value arising from the customers. So if you think about what happens at a lot of companies, you go into the corporate lunchroom and you look around and they have a stock ticker going all around the walls saying this is the share price. This is the value of the firm. It is your job to make this number as large as possible. And the problem is that the share price doesn't only represent your hard work as an employee, it also represents what it is that investors think, and you have no control over that. So instead, we advocate for this idea of customer equity. This is what we do have direct control over. This is what we want to be held accountable for. How many customers are we acquiring? How good are they? How long are they going to stay around? How much lifetime value do we think they, they have in them? That's the number that should be circulating around the corporate lunchroom, customer equity. And while a lot of people just view that as a concept that's just as vague, maybe interesting, but as vague as brand equity, that goes back to this idea of customer-based corporate valuation. 
that if we look at the customer equity, that that's going to be by itself a very good indicator of what the company is worth. And if we put aside any non-operational assets or net debt, if we look only at the revenue arising from the firm's operations, if you think about it, every penny is going to come from a customer. And even if you have a great brand and that allows you to bring in wonderful employees and get tax breaks and so on, all of those benefits, or most of those benefits at least, are going to arise through more customers buying more and making better margin off of them. So we believe that while brand equity is is a really interesting concept, it's one that's hard to measure, and it's largely, in our view, subsumed by customer equity. Yes, maybe there are some pieces of the brand that don't necessarily show up um, through the customers buying more, uh, but you have to believe that, that most of it does. And so part of it, look, we didn't invent the idea of customer equity. It's it's been around uh, among other academics and some companies for for some time. But we're just trying to legitimize it. We're just trying to measure it with great rigor and accountability. And that's one of the reasons why we put it right up there in the the, the few words that we have in our customer centricity manifesto. Uh, We want to make it real clear that this idea of customer equity is, is a major part of it. And it really is both a, a point of, of accountability, as I said before, but also uh, one of, of, of aspiration. It's, it's a rallying cry uh, for the company. Uh, Sarah, tell us more about uh, this, this idea of, of a manifesto and, uh, and you know, beyond just, just putting a, a list of names out there. Uh, what, what impact uh, do you, do we uh, hope that it will have? How will it change the conversation moving ahead? Yeah, so for me, so I've been involved with, you know, transformative change in the IT space and corporations time and time again. And this is usually around adopting best practice. And for me, I see the manifesto as really bringing that um, laser focus on what's important and helping to frame the conversation around what are the critical success factors that we are striving to achieve. And once you know, as you know, as the folks who are creating the roadmap, what those we call them CSFs or critical success factors are, and using the manifesto to help seed that plan, and then from there you can build in how you're going to actually measure the transformation itself. And usually, you know, we we look at measuring transformation by building a set of KPIs or key performance indicators to show are you actually moving the dial on the transformation that you're, you're hoping to achieve. So for me, the manifesto really is about bringing laser focus to the conversation and also being really specific about what customer centricity is and what it isn't. So we love that idea of being specific, and, and we hope that, that readers of the book will, will, will give us credit for that. We'll say, maybe we don't agree with everything you're saying, but you're being specific. Uh, and so to stay with that theme, to really take this idea of, of customer equity and, and just organizational alignment and so on, uh, one of the key building blocks and something that, that Sarah Toms knows a lot better than I do, and I bet some of our listeners do too, is the idea of a CRM system, Customer Relationship Management. Sarah, tell us a little bit about CRM uh, and its role in customer centricity and customer-centric transformation. Yeah, sure. So CRM has been around for a long time. It actually started as Rolodexes. You know, we're, we're talking pre-digital error. Um, and uh, even in the early days of it moving into the digital space, and we speak about this, it was looked at as being sort of um, and being positioned in many corporations as uh, the center of activity as far as tracking what's happening with your customers, looking at that traditional pipeline or funnel as those customers move through the funnel and start to engage uh, from prospect into actual, you know, booked customer and, and really understanding what they're interested in, who they are, and hopefully capturing some data about them. The problem is a lot of companies, uh, especially companies that have gone through uh, a series of merger and acquisitions, they're looking at their customer data in a very uh, disjointed way. They're, they're looking at, you know, they, one part of the company may have a CRM, another part of the company may as well, 
and they're not linking up and understanding what the entire value of that single customer might be to them. And so implementing a CRM in a good way, you're able to really start to move the dial and understand what that customer is actually to you and what their, not only their current value, but their future value is as well. So if you look at a company, uh, look, every company has a CRM system. Uh, you talk about uh, looking at customers in a good way or using the system in a good way. Get a little bit more specific about that. If, if you could look specifically at just what they're doing with the CRM system, putting aside what the people in marketing are doing or whether the finance people are using customer-based corporate valuation, what would be the telltale signs of a company that's, that's using its CRM system in a more customer-centric manner? So the first thing is, not looking at this purely as a technical solution or as a data solution. It really does need to be a solution, a holistic solution for your business. And what that means is you need to be thinking about um, aligning your processes across your different functional areas and understanding what data needs to be served up to those different areas as, you know, as related to the customer to help those different uh, parts of the business essentially drive higher CLV. Um, so uh, great examples are ones where they really have sat down, and I know we're going to be talking to Royce Cohen from uh, the L.A. Dodgers soon, and really beginning in an agnostic way. Don't really think about, okay, well, we've got to fit ourselves into this technical solution. Start by saying, what do we need to – what are our goals as a business? What do we really want to achieve? And what processes do we actually want to follow that make the most sense for us and for our customer base? Once you have all of that in hand, and that is a non-technical conversation, then you start to engage with the technical CRM providers and make sure that what your objectives are can and will be mapped into that solution. So I want to put you on the spot, Sarah. Uh, so – so we talk about CRM, which really should be, as you said, an organization-wide asset. It shouldn't be the case that, that each functional area has its own digital Rolodex. Uh, and then uh, we were talking to Dan McCarthy about this idea of customer-based corporate valuation, uh, part of it legitimizing customer centricity by getting the finance people on board. As we bring those concepts together, so, so in other words, both of them are kind of silo-busting uh, 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 ideas. Uh, try to, to marry them for, for us. Like, uh, how can CRM help us do CBCV? So um, to get really specific, not easily. And I'm experiencing this with my own team where we're in the process of doing um, a, you know, a CRM implementation using a major CRM cloud provider, you can probably guess who, and we're now getting into the parts of the conversation where we're integrating with our finance team, and out of the box, most CRM systems don't really move into that finance space in a mature way and in a way that is going to work for the finance team. And so when you are actually trying to then roll that all back and understand your corporate base, uh, or your customer-based corporate valuation, the CRM systems aren't there yet, Pete, from my experience and what I'm seeing today. Do you think it's, uh, it's due to the vendors or, or the clients? Like, who do we blame and, and how is it going to change? Well, so to my point during uh, the conversation with Dan, I think that you and Dan are currently pioneering in this space and the CRM vendors haven't caught up with you yet. They will. They're going to have to, but they're just not quite there yet. Uh, and obviously, I, I agree, and I, I appreciate th those words. Uh, I think that is one of the goals. You know, people hear us talk about customer-based corporate valuation, and you think, "Aha! They're going to set up a hedge fund, and they're going to start buying and selling companies based on their customer equity." That's a really cool idea, and, and I actually hope that others will do just that. But not me. 
I'm a marketing professor. Um, all I want is to create legitimacy for marketing and better coordination with the folks in finance and with the folks in operations and HR and all the way across the organization. And that was the kind of leading question that I just asked to Sarah, is that if we can come up with these ideas, if we can find a way to get a big win within finance and, and something similar in the other functional areas, all built off of customer-centric thinking and granular customer-level data, which come from the CRM systems, that's where we're going to get the big win. Uh, so it's it's to create that that kind of uh, integration and alignment, uh, and I think that will help us take CRM systems uh, to that next generation. At least, again, that that's our aspiration, and we're hoping that our customer centricity playbook is going to be a, a big step in that direction. Now, uh, go ahead, Sarah. Yeah, and I was just to that point, and I know we make mention of this in the book, where we've seen a lot of success is actually pulling your data out of your CRM and actually running those algorithms externally. So that's where we are today. That's the state of things today, just to be completely explicit to the listeners. So, Sarah, I mentioned that in a few minutes we're going to have Royce Cohen from the Los Angeles Dodgers with us. Now, is this the Moneyball program on SiriusXM? Is it, is it Wednesday morning? Are we going to talk about the World Series? Well, I don't think so. Um, we're actually going to talk about uh, what Royce and his team at the L.A. Dodgers have done, not so much with the players on the field, but with the ticketing analytics. So I, I think you're going to find it just, a, just a, a wonderful case study of a lot of these ideas, everything that we've been talking about uh, coming in, in, into action. And, and it's beautiful because it's a, it's a really live case study. It's, even though the baseball season has ended, the hard work has, has really begun for the professional sports organizations. So we're going to be talking with Royce Cohen of the Los Angeles Dodgers. You are listening to Marketing Matters on Sirius XM 132. I'm Pete Fader with Sarah Toms. I'm just thrilled to have our next guest, Royce Cohen. He's the Senior Manager of Business Development and Analytics for the Los Angeles Dodgers. I want to tell you a little backstory about Royce but before I formally introduce him here. So Royce was one of my students. He graduated from Wharton in 2012. And back in 2011, I had just the great privilege of working on a on a big project with Major League Baseball. Ostensibly, it was all about ticketing analytics. So again, putting aside all the money ball stuff about which players they should draft and what position they should play, it's how can these professional sports organizations run their business more effectively? Uh, and so MLB uh, approached me to, to work on something about ticketing analytics, and for me, I'm thinking, heh, heh, heh. This is a chance to talk about customer centricity, and so seriously, one of the uh, one of the, the conditions that I made, I said, MLB, I'll work with you on this under one condition that you hire Royce Cohen. And so Major League Baseball hired Royce, and he was instrumental in launching the Ticketing Analytics Group, which which uh, today thrives uh, under uh, MLB's Office of the Commissioner. They work with all 30 teams to basically come up with the best ways of using all of the rich data that they have about their fans and, and sharing those best practices across the teams and across the leagues. Uh, and then uh, a couple of years ago, the Los Angeles Dodgers, smart club that they are, said, wait a minute, there's a whole lot of talent. Why, why share them with all the other teams? And so they, they brought Royce on board, and he's just built just a great organization internally. Uh, and he, basically it's an internal consulting arm working on all kinds of different topics uh, to, to basically expand the Dodgers brand beyond just the usual ways that you would think about for a sports franchise. And again, a big part of that is collecting data in smarter ways, leveraging it, recognizing the difference across customers, all the things that we've been talking about all along. And where we feature him in the book is in our chapter on CRM, Customer Relationship Management Systems, because uh, some of the things that, that he and his team have been doing at the Dodgers have been super interesting. So, Royce, it is great to have you with us. Thanks very much, Pete. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm sure it's a, a nice change of pace uh, compared to all the events that were happening uh, earlier this week. The, the Dodgers gave it a good go. As, as a Phillies fan, uh, losing in the World Series is still quite an accomplishment, so I, I hope you feel that it was a, a satisfying season despite the, the, the very last game. 
Well, you, you describe it as a nice change of pace. Uh, let, let's maybe just stick with a uh, change of pace. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, and so as we were writing the book, uh, Sarah and I were, were contemplating uh, just a lot of uh, a, a different organizations uh, that have been doing cool things w- with their data and with analytics and so on. Uh, and I thought about Royce and the Dodgers, and I introduced Sarah and Royce, and they seemed to have just a, a wonderful conversation. And I'd like to basically repeat parts of it here. And, of course, uh, you can read a lot of the highlights in, in our book, The Customer Centricity Playbook. So, uh, Sarah, tell us uh, about some of the things that, that you were asking Royce, and let's get right into it. Wonderful. Royce, it's so nice to speak again. Yeah, very nice to speak uh, with you as well, Sarah. Great. So, yeah, so we had an incredible conversation earlier in the summer as we were uh, we were actually wrapping up the book. And just to correct Pete, we originally had you placed in the CRM chapter, and then we decided it was such a great case study, we actually end the book on this high note. Uh, so right in the end of the book is the story of the L.A. Dodgers. So I really want to go back to 2014 when you started with the team, and if you could explain what it was like there uh, as you arrived from the standpoint of data and customers. Yeah, uh, yeah, ha- happy to. Um, you know, I, I came over uh, just about, uh, I guess, four years ago now. Um, so four four years, but you know, five postseasons at this point. Um, and and uh, you know, when I got here at the Dodgers, you know, I think. Uh, the way that the new ownership group kind of framed it for me when I when I came over was, you know, they had spent the better part of you know two years plus kind of you know working on some of the foundational elements, uh, some stadium renovations, some large scale contracts uh, that that were going to you know position the team uh, for the future, and 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 they got into the point where you know the the, the low hanging fruit was kind of out of the way. Um, and, and that was really time to, to dig in, and you know we kind of had a, a guiding thesis that you know a baseball team, you know, being in the business of sports and entertainment, you know, we, we, we sell tickets, we sell hot dogs, we sell hats and shirts and and all that stuff, and and you know we we want to first optimize all of that, um, uh, but, but then second, you know, how do we look past that? So so it's one thing to um, you know fill every seat in the building, and, and we try our best and. And you know the Dodgers have led MLB in attendance, uh, you know, a number of years in a row, uh, you know, setting franchise records this year. Um, so, so we're, we're certainly proud of that, and couldn't do it without, uh, you, you know, the, the 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 rabid fan base that we that we do have. Um, but uh, you know, there'll come a point where um, you, you can only sell so much, or you know, you can only charge so much for for, for certain certain items, um, you know, before a point of saturation, and so. How do you really look past that and and, 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 and look at ways to, to generate and, and, and think differently about the business of sport more globally? And, and, and you know that that was really a you know you know a big driver of, of coming out here. Um, you know as it relates to you know our, our data systems. You know uh, sports teams in general are, are small businesses. Um, you know compared to some of the firms we work with and contract with. You know, you know we're, we're front office is maybe a hundred people. You know, 200 people on on the high side. Uh, you know, a lot of them are focused on on baseball uh, analytics and, and 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 baseball operations. A lot of them are focused on operations of a of a building. And so, when you really peel uh, you know the business side down to its core, you're talking about really a few dozen uh, tops that, that are focused there. Uh, and and just that a necessity over time, teams have kind of uh, you know. Figured uh, a need for more sophisticated processes, systems, and, and and ways of monitoring things, so so that they can really strategically plan uh, how to approach uh, a, a year or, or a fan base or, or a you know a, a calendar with, with with some some tact and cadence, you know, as opposed to you know reacting to, to whatever happens the night before. So I remember from our conversation, Royce, that. Where you really began, you know, the team you were working with was actually not thinking about, okay, we got to go and just quickly rush and get a CRM or some business insights, you know, a, a business analytics system. You you started by really working to understand what the needs and capabilities should be before you actually selected a system. Isn't that right? Yeah, um, and and you know, one of the things that we uh, you know we are thankful to be positioned to be able to do. 
uh, being at the Los Angeles Dodgers um, and, and, and something that's consistent with uh, a lot of my philosophy and, and, and business is, is kind of a, a build versus buy approach, and, and I think it leads into there. But you know, there, there are companies out there, there are vendors out there that offer CRM solutions, that offer uh, business intelligence solutions that, uh, you know, a lot of teams uh, or, or organizations in sports kind of plug and play and, and, and you know, are more or less cookie cutter, maybe some customization. But but for us, you know, we, we really, you know, and kind of a blessing and a curse, as I think it's kind of described in the in the case study, um, you know, being as there weren't those systems in place, we, we had the opportunity to kind of evaluate kind of, you know, from from scratch. And so, you know, there was a lot of a lot of listening day one and, and month one and year one um, on, on kind of what, what the core issues are and, and, and how we think about, uh, you know, organizing our, our, our business. And, and, and then you really, you know, once you get past that and are able to, to, to define uh, what you're trying to accomplish and, and, and where everyone wants to go, then you can decide, all right, where is it appropriate to bring in an enterprise system? Where does it make sense to build our own kind of, database and logic and, 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 and automated processes. So we, we, we've struck a balance of, of, of doing both of those. And so bringing it back to, you know, customers and, you know, expanding upon and improving uh, the value of your customers beyond the ticket sales and the hot dogs and the hats, can you give us some examples of what you've done at the LA Dodgers? So one of the, you know, uh, you know I guess I'll give maybe Two examples. Um, one would be, uh, you know, over uh, the last several years in baseball and the business side, you know, segmentation has been a uh, hot topic uh, for, for analytics teams. And uh, you know, typically, uh, you know, a team or an organization may, may segment its fan base based on uh, what 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 I'd call observable characteristics, so that you know, personas, demographics, um, you know, can kind of base level uh information that's it's not very personalized it's 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 uh you know again more observable and and so as we were thinking about that area of the business we you know we really thought of it more attitudinally and behaviorally and really with a you know building off of a lot of Pete's work uh you know on a customer or fan lifetime value uh basis and and and, and so uh you know how do we start to create products and uh, whether those are ticketing products, whether those are merchandise products, whether they're access, you know, you know, one of the things that we've done, you know, in the last several years since I've been here is we have a fan fest event every January at the stadium, and um, you know, historically a lot of teams maybe you can come and get players autographs or grab bags or you know do you know fun activations, um, but we started to make you know much more personalized experiences for for uh, people that. Uh, you know, I remember one, uh, and it kind of illustrates the, the base. I believe a gentleman flew in from Tennessee last year, and we offered like you know 10 to 15 like VIP experiences. We called them, um, you know, a meet and greet with some of our star players, a Q and A with the manager, uh, you know, a, a behind the scenes tour that you know the general public didn't get to see, a, you know, a session in the bullpen or the batting cages. And there was one gentleman from Tennessee who bought every single one of them. And and so we were, we were looking, you know, at the at the data, you know, kind of leading up to it, and, and we we're like, well, um, you know, maybe is this is this someone who's trying to, you know, resell these, or you know, and 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 he shows up the next day, and and he says, no, I'm I'm, you know, I just figured I, you know, was flying in for this, and I wanted to buy everything, um, and and, and so it, it, it's that type of fan base, it's it's those types of people that. that you know, uh, you, you can't uh, quantify that uh, based on you know observable characteristics. That's kind of what differentiates uh, sports fans from 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 uh, you know just just general consumers out there. And so, um, you know, when when we uh, went about our segmentation, we we really put CLV at the forefront, um, behaviors, attitudes, and 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 approach it that way. Uh, kind of the real life application, I think, uh, that may resonate is. You know, it's something that we've we've wrapped up here in the last uh, month or so. Um, but we offered to our fan base for the first time a an early renewal offer for season tickets. And uh, you know, this kind of dates back to when I was you know still in school, right after school. Uh, you know, in Philadelphia, you know, in New York, traveling to 
you know, Atlantic City, New Jersey on a lot of weekends. And, and, and you know, I remember, a, you know, a hotel and casino out there would have a, a specific login for me on their website. And, and, and so I could log in and view different rates and amenities and perks, uh, you know, that, that weren't necessarily transparent to, uh, you know, every single other person uh, or, or client of theirs. And, and, and so their, their offers were talking to me, trying to get me to, to come in and engage with them. And, and, and you know, that, that really resonated. And, and, and similarly, we, we kind of, you know, broke our, uh, you know, season ticket base into different segments based on, uh, you know, where their seating location is, how long they've been with the, you know, been a season ticket holder, and, and, and you know, tried to provide really enhanced benefits like taking bagging practice on the field, or, or getting a you know discount on, on, on you know at our concession stands, um, you know do that kind of stuff for the for the people who um, you, you know are maybe a little less price sensitive, um, but 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 want that added value versus you, you know uh, our, we have a big stadium and, and 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 we certainly have a lot of fans who who are very uh, price conscious and so for them we we actually kept their price year over year flat, uh, which is something that we hadn't done for for, for a number of years. And so, um, you know, trying to speak to, to, to the tiers or, or segments a little, you know, in a, in a customized way um, that aligns with uh, their interests. Um, and, and, and hopefully that kind of philosophy uh, will, will continue to, to grow and, uh, and, and be expanded upon. Hey, listeners, uh, this is Pete Fader on Marketing Matters on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. Uh, we're, we're listening to Royce Cohen of the Los Angeles Dodgers talk about giving behind-the-scenes tours of Dodger Stadium as as a perk for, for premium customers. And he's basically giving us a behind-the-scenes tour of just the, the, the analytics and just the customer-centric thinking that goes on within a prof- professional sports organization. And I bet a lot of you haven't necessarily thought about that angle before. Like, what, what, what are they doing uh, as they're setting ticket prices and trying to tie together different promotional offers and offering them to different kinds of segments? So if you have questions or experiences about that, give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. It's 1-844-942-7866. I'm here with my co-host, Sarah Toms, who's talking about a, a conversation that she had as part of our customer centricity playbook with Royce Cohn, and I'll uh, hand it right back to Sarah. Thank you, Pete. So what I love about that story, Royce, is it really has direct application to uh, Pete and my book, where we talk about, you know, Pete just mentioned premium services, where you're looking for, you know, where are you leaving value on the table with your high-value customers? How can you run a more offensive, you know, offense, high-value uh, strategy or a strategy for your high-value customers that will grow the value of them? Um, so thank you. That, those, uh, both of those are really great examples. You mentioned in the fan base example that CLV really has been at the forefront as, um, you know, f- for measuring for you. And I was wondering if you could share sort of your, your CLV journey um, has it always been easy, you know, especially since, you know, you've been developing these systems for capturing and analyzing the data? Were there any early experiments uh, in trying to uh, work on analyzing CLV and, and uh, calculating it that maybe weren't always perfect? Yeah, it, you know, it, it wasn't uh, certainly perfect, and, and, and it would be uh, – you know, inappropriate to, to represent kind of our current state as, 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 you know, being perfect. I think we've made a lot of strides over the last three or four years. But when we when we first took a stab at this back in 2015, uh, you know, for reasons outside of our control, you know, we just switched ticketing systems and, and our database wasn't, you know, kind of, uh, you know, built in the correct way historically. Um, you know, we had, we had a limited, uh, you know, historical data, probably like one year's worth. Um, and, you know, by this point we have five or six, and it's, it's you know it's much more robust. And so when we when we took a run at this back in 2015, a lot of it was survey based. It was um, you know anecdotal responses, and, and we did our best to to kind of you know project out what that meant over time uh, for our different segments. But but it, you know it wasn't uh, it certainly wasn't robust, um, and and it was harder to build confidence internally in the accuracy and and validity of that type of approach, whereas now, 
you know, people, uh, you know, can, can see how the last several years have, have performed, and, and, and that's really helped us kind of go back and, and update a lot of that, uh, you know, that framework on our end to, to the point where, you know, you know when, when, when a new customer joins our database, there are certain things that we're looking at uh, that, that, that basically uh, will, will, will help us for, from a statistical standpoint, uh, you know, slot that individual into uh, a segment um, or, or and, 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 you know, assign a, a customer lifetime value. And, and those are the types of things that we, we look to uh, use on a, on a strategic level uh, as we make decisions uh, each year. Yeah, and that is, I mean, those points exactly are so important, I think, to the listeners thinking about, you know, their strategy and, you know, especially if they're just beginning their foray into CLV is really starting small with small data samples, testing, retesting, you know, growing from there rather than trying to kind of boil the ocean, if you will, day one. So... I also wanted to make sure that we leave time to talk about an incredibly uh, exciting venture, Global Sports Venture Studios, that has really, from my memory, really has been something that's grown out of uh, sort of all the work that you've been doing in the data analytics side. So I was wondering if you could share what Global Sports Venture Studio is and, and you know, what your goals are with this new new venture. For sure. Um, you know, back in 2015, 2014-2015, uh, we partnered with a firm, uh, RGA, to, to, to build what was called the Dodgers Accelerator. And, and the goal there was, was kind of how I started out the conversation around, uh, yeah, we, we, we are going to try to optimize our, our business internally, but there comes a point where you, you sold the tickets you can sell and you sold the popcorn you can sell and, 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 and what's next after that. And, you know, if there are... Uh, innovations that we as a team are looking to, to, to go out and solve, it's likely that there are 29 other baseball teams and three other sports leagues and college teams, high school, youth sports, uh, you know, all these similar organizations that are, that are, you know, racking their heads around the same kind of business problems. And so the Dodgers Accelerator back in 2014-2015 was, you know, really intended to, to get a, you know, a, a good group of, of startup companies in um, you know, provide them with resource and guidance, and and and, and you know, with the, the goal of providing scale, unfair advantage, um, you, you know, to them, and uh, you know, participating in, in in the business growth that way. Um, you know, that that program evolved 2015, 2016. Uh, you know, to the point now where you know we've kind of flipped it to to, to a global sports venture studio uh, with RGA that that has a number of uh, you know partner companies and Adidas, Dick's Sporting Goods, Levy Restaurants. Fox Sports, Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, the NHL, Octagon, UEFA, um, and, 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 you know, along with the Dodgers, these groups, uh, you know, sit along, you know, get, get together on a, on a monthly, if not more frequent basis to talk topically, you know, what about youth sports? What about sports betting? What about uh, blockchain? What, you know, all these innovations uh, that, that are out there, and, and, and then go try to find companies that are, uh, you know, working, uh, doing work in that space. Um, you know, uh, globalsportsventurestudio.com is kind of the, the, the splash page website that we have up for the initiative. Uh, check it out. Um, you know, but but it's one way that, that that we try to take some of what we're doing uh, internally at the Dodgers uh, for, from an innovation and thought perspective, and try to a check ourselves, get get other industry leaders, uh, you know, around the table, um, uh, you, you know, to to provide their input and 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 create an even better kind of competitive moat around some of the, the companies that are, are, are heading in the right direction, um, and, 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 and then, you know, obviously try to scale some of the work that we're doing. So we, we actually have a question here. Kyle from Minnesota has a question. Uh, Kyle, do you want to uh, uh, put, put that out there for Royce? Hey there. Yeah, I was just curious. Um, when you were talking about some of those personal experiences that you're offering for your core customer base, um, some of those things are sometimes hard to quantify success. Is there a strategy um, that you guys are using to be able to track uh, maybe if they stay around longer or if um, they buy uh, better seats from being able to enjoy the experiences you're offering? Or 
how do you guys quantify that? Uh, Kyle, I love that question. Thanks for asking. Because it's 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 relevant not only for Royce and the Los Angeles Dodgers, but for every company out there that's thinking about customer experience. How do we quantify the success of, of customer experience? So let's at least get the, the, the perspective from the Dodgers, Royce. I think there are a few ways that we, we, we think about that. Um, one would be through, uh, you know, call it feedback, and, and, and feedback is broad, but, uh, you know, that could be survey-based. Um, you know, it could be, uh, you know, client to, to representative on our side, uh, you know, via CRM or, or some other uh, system. Um, you know, so, so, so there's kind of the anecdotal uh, satisfaction metric of, you know, if, 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 if you track it for, uh, you know, a long enough time, over, uh, you know, the, the, your customer base, you can see how that changes. And, and, and so, um, you, you know, yes, we want uh, to spend more. Um, so, sorry, you know, we, we ideally want our, our fans to, to, you know, continue investing in, 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 the, in the team uh, and the product that we put forth. Um, but, uh, you know, likelihood to, to come back is something that we look at. Um, and, and so if, if they're more likely... Uh, if, if, if they uh, obviously if, if they upgrade their investment, but but one thing that we uh, you know was easy for us this year um, was, was basically a, a timing mechanism. So so we had an offer out there and it was a limited time, kind of four or five week uh, type offer, and so um, you know we we know uh, the people that that took it, uh, you know either uh, you know they were going to take it anyway, and so why not? Or, or that was a key driver in getting them to, to commit to season tickets for 2019 in you know August of, of 2018 as opposed to, to later on. Um, you, you know the group that did not uh, take us up on the offer. You know we, we can be pretty confident that uh, for, for them, uh, you know it, it, you know it wasn't a big enough driver. Uh, that's great stuff, Kyle. Again, th- thanks for asking the question, and and I, and I love Royce's answer. Just it, it it's. It's hard just to come up with a single formula. It's going to involve thoughtful experimentation. It's going to be, uh, it's always going to be a, a, a work in process as, as you try to uh, learn what resonates and, uh, with certain customers and what works from a, a financial standpoint. But, Royce, that's all the time that we have. So I thank you so much for joining us tonight. You're quite welcome. Thanks for having me. And, and likewise, I want to give just a special, special thanks to Sarah Toms, my co-host, my co-author on the Customer Centricity Playbook. Again, we encourage all of you to go to Amazon or the Wharton Digital Press to check it out. Uh, Sarah, thanks so much. Great honor. Uh, and it's been just a, a great evening for me. It's been a, a, a treat, not a trick. This has been Marketing Matters on Sirius XM 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.